Good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Carson and Michael Darnowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. After a two-week hiatus while I was on vacation, the Politics Guys newsletter is back. This week's issue features my thoughts on President Trump's tax returns, Leah on the Trump budget and the hollow state, and Joe on immigration and American liberalism. To get the newsletter, just go to our website, politicsguys.com, and sign up on the form you'll see there. You can also check out previous issues by clicking on the Past Newsletters link above the sign-up form. Also, I want to let everyone know about a great service I've been using for a while now, Craft Coffee. I'm a pretty big coffee geek, but I've always had a tough time getting high-quality, freshly roasted beans that don't cost a small fortune. After trying out a bunch of different options, I found Craft Coffee. They send me a bag of beans every few weeks. I can customize the delivery schedule to whatever I want for only $11.99. It's roasted just a few days before they ship to me, and shipping is free. Most important, it tastes great. So why am I telling you this? Well, they're not paying me to do this. This isn't an advertisement, but Craft Coffee is offering us a deal. If you sign up using my special promo code, you get 15% off and I get a free bag of coffee. So it's a win-win. If you're interested, go to craftcoffee.com and when you sign up, use the promo code N5F-SQV. Again, that promo code for 15% off is N5F-SQV. And now, on to this week's show. There's so much going on this week, but, you know, in my view, the most important story, and the one we're going to start with this week, was the release of President Trump's budget proposal. Now, the president's budget increases defense spending by $54 billion, calls for more money for border security and immigration judges, and requests $1.7 billion in 2017 and an additional $2.6 billion in 2018 to start construction of that Mexico border wall. Now, these increases are offset with major cuts at a number of agencies, including reductions of more than 20% at the Agriculture, Labor, and State Departments, and more than 30% at the Environmental Protection Protection Agency. And even though Republicans control both the House and the Senate, it's highly unlikely that the budget Congress passes will include all of the administration's proposed cuts, as both Democrats and Republicans have objected to many of these reductions. So, Jay, what's your take on the budget proposal? I think it's it's sort of what one would expect from Donald Trump, the negotiator. Uh, He's setting out sort of his his beginning bargaining position and uh, he's leaving plenty of room to maneuver uh, to make a deal down the road. Um, I I I I firmly believe that (laughs) we'll we'll see as how things how things uh, play out. But uh, I think he has to understand that uh, obviously all these cuts are not going to happen. Cuts hardly ever happen. Uh, but uh, as a conservative, it's refreshing to see them actually proposed and to to put sort of the the uh, onus on the uh, the various agencies to come in and sort of justify what their budget requests are. And they may well be justified uh, or they may not. But I, I think it's a good mindset to have. Uh, to say, look, let's let's uh, let's start from paring back, and then and then see what uh, 
what you really need. Well, what about the other side of it? I mean, there's the pairing back side, and I think you can make a, a reasonable conservative case for that, though, of course, this budget uh, is is uh, neutral in that sense where he uh, cuts, but he also uh, you know, uh, puts in place or asks for a number of pretty big increases, that $54 billion for defense. I mean, do we, do we need that or you know, uh, uh, several billion dollars for a border wall and so forth? What, what do you think about that aspect of it? Well, again, I think that's going to be part of the negotiation. I mean, that's going to be something that, that Trump's going to have to <clears throat> to give back um, uh, as as things move forward. Um, you know, you you ask for more than what you think you're going to need, and you work back from there. Uh, I I think there's there's a good argument to be made on the conservative side that if we're going to adjust our spending, it ought to be more on the military and defense end, uh, simply because the military has become degraded over over years. Um, and there's a lot of catching up that needs to be done. Um, but I, I think, you know, the, the numbers, it's, it's, it's something he's going to, he's going to horse trade. Well, you know, on, on the military side of thing, you say it's, it's become degraded and so forth. And, and I wonder if it's not so much that is we're just overextended and maybe we need to take a look at some of these commitments. And, and I mean, we're putting, we put a ton of money into the military far more than anyone else. And if we're going to ask programs to justify their existence, why don't we start with the, the single biggest program in terms of discretionary spending? And that's the military instead of picking on, you know, the EPA, the agriculture department, if you're looking to cut the budget and be fiscally responsible, don't you go where most of the money is? Well, I, th- I think he probably would when you consider what he's talking about a lot is is upgrades in terms of our uh, capabilities rather than continuing operations. Um, you know, the, the military expenditures we've had of late have, have been uh, more excuse me, you know, for, forward focused. I mean, we're actually fighting wars as opposed to uh, building up capabilities, uh, maintenance, uh, so forth. So, uh, and, and I think Trump's been been pretty clear throughout his campaign, and, and I, I think he's, you know, he's skeptical of, of foreign wars. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly room there, uh, but uh, uh, I, I think it's going to be subject to, do the various sorts of uh, wheeling and dealing that that is supposed to be uh, his his uh, strongest suit. Yeah. Well, I, I of so course, we're going to see him. That's it's. Yeah. I think a lot of people sort of looked at the the upside of Trump. I know something that I looked at the upside is if you have someone who is um, more or less non ideological, uh, who can go in there and just uh, uh, again cut deals to to make things run again. Uh, there is some appeal to that. And I think Trump is that, that, you know, well, he's, yeah. he's non-ideological to a certain, a certain extent. Well, so. yeah, I, I would disagree, at least. Uh, you know, I, I've said before that you can tell uh, a lot about a person by the sort of uh, budget proposal he has, the spending priorities, that sort of thing. And, and this, is a, this, to me, seems to be an st- extremely ideological budget. It's the standard sort of Republican playbook of uh, putting a lot of money into defense without asking for any sort of justification and just cut it, trying to cut to the bone all sorts of domestic programs. And so well, – yet, uh, yet Republicans – are objecting to it. Well, yeah, the, because the, the cuts to <laughs> some of these programs are even more draconian than, than even some Republicans would like. Now, that's especially things like the State Department uh, is, is one big thing that a number of Republicans, including, I believe, Mitch McConnell, are saying this just isn't going to happen. But to me, it's, it's, a, it's a typical Republican budget, but even a little bit worse. Uh, you know, 
And one thing I think that's been underreported in all this is the huge problem of mandatory spending. The Congressional, yeah, oh, yeah, I mean, I agree now, on that. to just be clear to, to listeners, mandatory spending, then that includes pay interest payments on our debt. That's around 70% of our entire federal budget. So this sort of, this sort of budget proposal is kind of not so much tinkering on the edges, but the vast bulk of our budget is what's called mandatory spending. What that means is spending that essentially Congress has to do by law unless they change the law. And we're talking about largely uh, Social Security, uh, Medicare, that sort of thing. And if you take a look at the numbers, CBO estimates that in 2018, our deficit's going to be just under $500 billion, rising to around a trillion dollars by 2023. And that's driven almost entirely by uh, an aging population, healthcare cost increases, and a lot more money going to pay off interest on the debt. And so for people who are deficit hawks, and supposedly, you know, Donald Trump's budget director is, this is not a really great budget because it really doesn't do a whole lot in, in terms of that. And, you know, I think that's a legitimate concern going forward. And certainly a lot of conservatives have that concern. They believe that that's why we need to look at these programs. And on my side of thing, I believe that we need to restructure our tax system so we make sure we have the revenues to honor these commitments without going into debt, greater debt. Well, I'd, I'd say two points to that. Um, the first being, uh, I think I think the administration is looking at this budget as, a, again, a, a moving forward operating budget with the idea that if there's going to be some other big entitlement reform, that's going to be a separate bill. Uh, you know, some of that would will be taken up in the uh, the health care bill, uh, uh, and and others in, in possible other other fixes down the road. So I, I don't know that they're trying to, to solve all the problems at once. I think the second point is, to some extent, there's there's always the argument um, when you're you're cutting programs of look, this is in the big picture, it's chump change. Uh, there are you know various the various small programs that we used to call earmarks um, that by themselves are, have no serious fiscal impact on the uh, on the, the government. Um, but the idea is that. If you can't even cut those, how are you ever going to get up the, the political courage to tackle entitlements in the real problems? And and maybe you have to start small uh, and and take on some of these other trimming issues uh, before you get to the real big big ones. I, I hear what you say. I don't buy that argument. I understand the logic of it, but I don't I don't think it really necessarily follows. Uh, my guess is that we're not going to see the tax reform part of this. We're not going to see any serious changes to that. And I think until we well, get I, I to, think you I think you will. I think well, there's okay, going to be a well, tax reform bill. We'll yeah. see. The, the the last one was 1986. I don't think that we're in any kind of a position. I mean, and back then, of course, there was a lot less partisan polarization in Congress. I don't think we're going to see it. I hope I'm wrong. I think it, we're, we're far, we're long overdue. Now, you and I might differ in terms of what that would look like, but we can both agree that that's definitely something that needs to be done in a big way. You know, before, yeah. before we move on, I want to point out some people are using the term skinny budget to talk about this budget. And I just want to explain kind of the listeners what that means. The skinny budget's a term that's used to uh, describe the first budget of a new president because they're just because they're coming into office, getting their feet wet. And so these budgets tend to be not as detailed. So some people who were comparing uh, President Trump's 
first budget to President Obama's last budget, that's kind of an unfair comparison. I mean, Trump's budget's 53 pages compared to 182 in the last Obama budget. But if you take a look at, well, even if you take a look at skinny budgets, Trump's is still skinnier than most. For instance, uh, Obama's first skinny budget was 134 pages. George W. Bush's was 207 pages. Bill Clinton's was 145 pages. But the point being is that these first budgets tend to be a lot less detailed than most. And as we know, Donald Trump is not really a big detail guy, uh, but so this is a skinny budget, though it is a, a little bit skinnier than most people's skinny budgets. All right, um, moving on, you mentioned healthcare a little bit, Jay, and of course, last week you and Ken had what I thought was a great discussion about uh, the American Health Care Act, which is the House Republicans' proposed replacement for Obamacare. Now, this week, the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office came out with their analysis of the bill, concluding that it would add 24 million people to the roles of the uninsured while saving $337 billion by 2026. It would also stabilize individual insurance markets and lower average premium prices, but only by making coverage so expensive for older and sicker Americans that they wouldn't be able to afford it and would be forced to go without any insurance. The CBO report was worse than many people had predicted, and between that and the conservative revolt against what they're calling Obamacare light uh, or Ryan Care, I don't see this going anywhere without major changes. I mean, President Trump's surrogates and his fans in the right wing media have been consistently calling this, as I said, Ryan Care, trying to distance the president. And I honestly can't imagine imagine the president expending a ton of political capital on a proposal that's so disliked by so many people. Um, Jay, what do you think? Uh, I I think well it, first Trump did come back and say he supports the bill although was that in uh, quotes he appears appears to be working um, uh, to get more votes for it uh, that said the way he works is he's going to have to make deals and that means he's going to have to to make some alterations probably radical alterations uh, I think as it stands now uh, they don't have the votes in the Senate. Um, not even close. You know, they might not even, even have and, the votes in the House. That's talking again with the. Just the, the the 51 votes, not uh, not even considering, um, you yeah. know, if, if you were to have a bill that did more and would have to go, couldn't be go through the reconciliation process, would have to uh, meet the 60 vote requirement. Uh, that would be even more difficult. Right. Um, but I think there's 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 sort of a, a fascinating discussion going on about, you know, how exactly we do this. There's one school in the Republican camp that says this is sort of the Paul Ryan school. Uh, let's take what we can get starting off, uh, and then we will make other changes down the road. Now, those other changes would be uh, reductions in um, uh, various regulatory requirements that uh, should, in theory, lower the cost to insurers, uh, reducing some of the mandates on insurers. And those could, are things that wouldn't have to be done legislatively but could be done by rule. Uh, and then, uh, you know, part part three of this three-part plan would be another piece of legislation uh, that would address more substantive issues, for example, selling insurance across state lines and so forth. Uh, but it would be uh, of a nature that it couldn't go through the reconciliation process. Um, so I, I think those are those are the, the things that at play um, in how we handle this. And, and you've got conservatives who want to go for the whole enchilada at once. Um, and and uh, 
the Ryan team that wants to sort of take what you can get. Uh, so, I mean, we'll, we'll see how this plays out as far as the actual, the CBO thing. I mean, I'm a little skeptical just because of the CEO CBO's track record, um, particularly on Obamacare. They were, they were off by a margin of about, uh, more than 50%. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure that their predictions, uh, you know, actually sure. come to fruition. If you look at uh, what else, um, yeah, yeah, I, I want could, could be done sure. regulatory wise. I want to I want to address that now. I think it's fair to say that at least I believe that any sort of long term predictions out eight, nine, ten years should be taken with a grain of salt. And you know, you're absolutely right. And a number of conservatives, other conservatives, have pointed this out that on Obamacare, the CBO made some predictions that clearly were not right. And so I think that's not to necessarily completely denigrate the CBO. The CBO probably has the best nonpartisan predictions. Uh, certainly, they're going to be a lot more uh, fair-minded than predictions from either the left or the right. But when we're talking about these predictions, it's, you know, we're talking about a, a big programs with a lot of moving parts and so forth, and it's really difficult to predict. So these are the best numbers we have. They're certainly not gospel, but they're going to be better than numbers that you're going to get from, say, Donald Trump or Paul Ryan, because they have, they're have they so incredibly self-interested, where at least the CBO tries to do things in a nonpartisan way. So uh, a couple other, one other thing I wanted to mention is that in that, the, the CBO also mentioned that it's not actually the case that Obamacare is in a death spiral. They expected premium rates to, to, to settle out in that as well. And so some people are saying, well, you know, if you just gave Obamacare a little bit of time to stabilize, things would be better than certainly under this Ryan care thing or Obamacare light where so many people lose their insurance. Um, but to me, it seems like, uh, number one, Probably the best thing that could be done would be to uh, make a simple policy fix, and that's to give the current Obamacare coverage mandate more teeth, to make it more of a punitive thing. That, you, that way you get more healthy people signing up, and that would help to kind of balance things off and stabilize the market. Second, people need to be punished further. No, people need to be need to be made to. I mean, we and you, you and Ken talked about this last week, how insurance works and so forth. And for it to work, I think you need more people to 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 sign up. But you know, maybe that's another discussion. But a second thing, and this is something I think you might actually agree with me on, Jay, is that I think you know Donald Trump has said in the past that he supports allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices, something currently that Medicare is not allowed to do. But House Republicans, who are so deep in the pockets of Big Pharma, don't want to see this happen at all. And this, I think, would be a great way to help lower some costs, control some costs. But while the president says he's for that, and I, I, you know, salute him for being for that, uh, he's not going to get much buy-in from from Congress on this. Well, I think that's that's actually a, a decent argument to be made on that. Uh, I think it's a good argument in the Senate. My my concern, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, because I may be wrong. But I don't think that that's something you can do in the reconciliation process. Right, right. I think you, I think you may be right about that. Um, and I so, think that's a yeah. substantive change that yeah. would have to go get the sixty votes in the Senate. Yeah, I think you might be right about um, that. But I think actually that's something that probably could get sixty votes. I mean, they, I think right, there are yeah. Democrats and Republicans, and so if we're looking for bipartisan agreement on certain things, that's something that might actually work, though, I think that Paul Ryan and a number of Republicans would just say, "Uh uh-uh, we're not going to do that. And certainly uh, Big Pharma would freak out and there would be an awful lot of lobbying muscle pushed to make sure that that didn't happen. 
I would I want to make one one of the final sort of philosophical point on this, and that with okay. the, the CBO numbers, a certain percentage, and I the the last number I saw was something about fourteen million of those that they say would would lose coverage. Um, I, I'm it's, I'm not clear if it's exactly losing coverage. It's just a matter of uh, they would not get coverage if they were no longer forced to get coverage, um, and I think that's that's a little different. I mean, if, if there were people who didn't want health insurance in the first place, uh, and then they were required to do it, uh, by, by fear of taxation, um, you know, our, our, I understand, I understand there's the policy goal if you want more people in the pool. Uh, but at the same time, it's, I, I don't know that it's, it's right to say that they've lost health insurance coverage if, if they never wanted it in the first sure. place. That, that's and a fair point. Under compulsion. Yeah, that, that's a fair point, I think. And, but certainly also you recognize that there'll be millions of people who won't, who will want insurance, but, or will want coverage, whether it's through the individual market or through Medicaid, who sure. won't be able to get it if this goes And here's, here was another interesting, interesting point. The, there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal, I want to say last Tuesday, talking about that the, the number of people, um, you know, of that 14 million, there would be a certain percentage who would be Medicaid eligible. Um, but still wouldn't sign up unless they're forced to do it. Sure, I, I saw and that you, piece. You, right, you sort of you sort of say, well, look, if this is such a great program and a free program, um, you got to, and yet you have to to force people to to do it. Maybe it's not so great. Sure. Now, I, I would differ in. I I think probably a lot of those people who aren't signing up uh, aren't necessarily thinking through. No, I'd rather have no coverage than have Medicaid. I think they're just they're just not signing up because they're just. They're not joiners. Uh, you know what I mean? Well, no, and, and there's a, you know, you said you wanted to get philosophical. I'll get a little bit philosophical too. There, there is a, there is an argument to be made about, you know, the extent to which government should force people to do things for their own good. And you and I stand on slightly different sides of this argument, obviously, whereas, you know, conservatives, especially libertarian type conservatives would say, well, well, no. And if they don't want to do it, that freedom, that freedom interest is, should be paramount. And then they have to suffer the consequences of their actions. You don't want to eat your vegetables. I'm not going to make you. My argument would be, and I think to a certain extent, you might be a little bit sympathetic. The way we have the system set up nowadays is that we allow people to kind of do their own thing, but then when they get into real trouble, we feel like we have to help them out. And so it ends up costing the system more in the end. And, you know, I mean, we could talk about that with banks and financial institutions, I think. To yeah, a no, certain you're, extent, you're correct in the requirement that uh, emergency rooms have to provide exactly. emergency treatment so that those costs get passed on. Uh, to someone, uh, exactly. no matter what. Exactly. Yeah. So, but uh, you know, I, I, it'll be fascinating to see how this plays out. I think you know, both you and I agree that our current system is a, is an unholy mess. Uh, I don't know that this is going to fix it any, but we certainly need to do something. I think. Yeah. All right. Before we move on, we'd like to thank our new supporters this week. We have two new continuing supporters through Patreon. Uh, first is Chris, and also we have Scott. I don't know where Chris or Scott are from, but wherever you guys are from, we really appreciate your support. It helps keep the show going, and it means uh, a great deal to us. You know, Thank you. Thank yeah, you, guys. Thanks, guys. And now if you're assuming in, Chris is a guy, right? Yeah, well, yeah that's, that's true. We don't worry. Chris could be a, a, a woman also. So. We'll assume Scott is a guy, um, though. Um, right. But, you know, if you're interested in supporting the show financially, you can do what Chris and Scott did last week. Just go to politicsguys.com. Click on either the Patreon or PayPal donation links you'll see there. Every donation helps no matter what the amount is. Um, 
You know, it's especially helpful, as I mentioned, to have those continuing monthly supporters, which is real easy to set up through Patreon. And, uh, you know, finally, it would also be a big help if you could spread the word about the show, share and retweet our new show posts on Facebook and Twitter, and leave reviews and ratings of the show on iTunes. Okay, moving on. On March 6th, going back a little bit, President Trump issued a new and improved travel ban intended to get around the problems with his original travel ban of January 27th, which, of course, several federal judges prevented from going into effect, citing the potential unconstitutionality of various aspects. Now, this week, the same thing happened to the president's second tribe when federal judges in Hawaii and Maryland issued orders blocking the new ban. While the Trump administration claims it's not a religious ban, the judges both disagreed, citing comments made by Donald Trump as a candidate, as well as by Trump advisors Stephen Miller and Rudy Giuliani. Now, as Judge, Judge Watson wrote in the Hawaii case, a reasonable objective observer would see the new ban as issued with a purpose to disfavor a particular religion in spite of its stated religiously neutral purpose. The administration, of course, was not happy with this, with President Trump claiming that Judge Watson had made a political ruling and an appeal is in the works. Jay, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I, I think uh, this time Trump's got it right. Uh, let, me, let me qualify that by saying, uh, first of all, I think the the idea of having the, the travel ban and so forth, it's it's really something that is is probably not needed. Uh, most people don't see the urgency to it. Um, I don't know that he's made a, a great case that it's it's urgent. Um, but that said, uh, I think the, the court's ruling, taking these, this idea that we're going to look back at what a president said uh, during a campaign and, and what people like Rudy Giuliani, who has no real official position uh, in the in the in the either in the campaign or in the, the cabinet uh, had said uh, regarding this um, and, and draw conclusions about the scope of presidential power based on that. Uh, it, it really is unprecedented. And I, I don't think it'll stand. I mean, I, I am in. I'm in the same company with Alan Dershowitz on this, uh, who says that he would he would see the uh, U.S. Supreme Court rejecting this uh, 8-0, uh, overturning the, the lower court's decision 8-8-8-0. Eight, eight, eight um, and the, the point is, look, you can agree or disagree whether it's good policy, but th- some of the, the standard ways, I mean, the, the – the paramount thing that a court looks at is they assume that the intent of a, a bill or an act or a, in this case, an executive order uh, resides in its actual language that it's used. And they are not to, to look beyond the four corners of that document uh, unless there's well, some sort of ambiguity that might let, be informed uh, by, by some sort of intent. Let, let me, and, let me, and this, so let me disagree with you a little bit on that. Uh, I think there, you know, if you can look back at prior uh, federal court and Supreme Court precedents, there there have been a number of instances in which Congress or the executive have done something specifically to get around uh, a ruling of the court. And in those cases, not only the case law right in front of me, but uh, I, you know, I can certainly provide that later on. That the court has said, no, you can't. This is this is clearly uh, an attempt to get around this, and that's what the court is saying here is that you 
you said that you were going to institute a Muslim ban, a religious ban, which is unconstitutional under the Establishment Clause. And, you know, you're, you're phrasing it now in a way to try to sort of just squeak through, but we know what you're, what you're really doing. And, and I will, I will grant you, Jay, that, uh, deference is owed to the democratically elected branches. I believe in that. I, I believe to a certain extent in, in that uh, idea of judicial restraint. But I also think that when something seems to be a, a blatant and transparent attempt to institute a religious ban, then it's perfectly permissible for the courts to say, um, excuse me, we know what you're doing here. Well, here's here's the thing, though, is it's not a Muslim ban or religious ban. And you and I talked about this uh, way back, way back when during the campaigns. And I even said, well, geez, what they could do is you identify certain countries where there's jihad activity and you make a finding and say, listen, we are concerned uh, about bringing people in from these countries, which, you know, have have active Al Qaeda or ISIS uh, elements uh, who are advocating the, the, you know, death to America. Uh, And I think that's that's pretty reasonable. And I think that's what, you know, Rudy Giuliani probably told him at some point is, hey, look, Trump, you, you can't do a you can't just say you're going to ban Muslims. Uh, but if your concern is banning potential jihadists, uh, then here's how you would go about doing that. So it, it's sort of a, a can't win situation if you're going to do this of, OK, I'm, I'm going to do something that is constitutional, but the court's going to say, yeah, yeah, but you're trying to do something. You know, we know what you really think, so we're not going to let you do it anyway. Um, well, yeah. And, and I think it, it raises a whole bunch of other I mean. You know, there's there's the sort of often, you know, sort of cliche about, you know, judges are there to call balls and strikes. Uh, and this this strikes me a little bit as, you know, look, the pitcher throws one right over the plate. But the umpire says, yeah, he meant to pitch it low and outside. Uh, so I'm going to call it a ball. I mean, it's just. Well, again, you know, and, if, and I think this gets into sort of a, uh, a, a general philosophical differences. We're coming back to that again about, you know, what is the proper role of the courts? And I, I get I get where you're coming from. And I, I think this is not necessarily a, a, a close case, but obviously, you know, at least a couple of federal judges have have seen it this way. I don't really think that the Supreme Court, I disagree with you and Dershowitz. I don't think if it got to the Supreme Court, it would be an eight to O thing. But I can see where reasonable people would would disagree on this. Now, the one thing it seems to me that you and I both agree on is that uh, from a policy perspective, this is this is probably not a great idea. And I'll also point out that it seems to me that this is in a way kind of a kind of a big shame in the sense that I feel like Donald Trump has been sort of, I don't know, trapped or co-opted or what have you by Steve Bannon and some of his nationalist rhetoric and so forth, where you know, here he maybe had the opportunity to do important things that could really matter. And, and there's so much time and energy that's being wasted on this dumb, pointless policy that's sucking up so much attention and political capital. And it just it just seems to me to be such an incredible waste. And I would think that a lot of conservatives would feel that way, too. Well, I, I think so. I think my my sense is. Uh, why do you want to pick this hill to die on? Exactly. Um, exactly. There, there's there's plenty of other fights uh, that that are more substantive that you could have, and this is distraction. Now, if I'm if I'm thinking in a purely Trumpian Bannon sort of political way, uh, there is an advantage, and and I am going to be in completely cynical Machiavellian uh, even uh, in in this, in that, look, if there is a terror attack on U.S. soil by someone from one of these countries, uh, 
Trump Trump will be essentially exonerated. Right. He he will you know he'll be able to say, look, told you so, and it's it's the damn courts that wouldn't let me do it. I tried to protect you and I didn't. Um, so if if you're looking at this in a purely cynical again Machiavellian kind of way, there there is that piece out there now. I don't know. Are these do these guys think this far ahead to 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 get there? I I don't know that they do. I think sometimes you just uh, you know you take whatever benefits you you get you get as as events happen. Yeah. But well, and again, um, this is you know there this is, is that. Well, well, this is part of that whole kind of Steve Bannon alt right sort of idea too. It fits in that whole thing about there are Americans, kind of white European types. Then there are these other dark people who don't share our values, who are letting into this country, and we're losing our country. Oh, so no, we need no, 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 I mean, that's the thing. I mean, I'm talking about how this fits into kind of that broader narrative of we need to keep America uh, American. And I mean, this is something we saw. Was it Steve King, the the nutty uh, Iowa uh, member of Congress, talking about and getting you know get, getting uh, tweeted something about that? You know, and, and and I think there's there's this element of this. Now I know I know you don't believe this, uh, but there are clearly people who are close to Donald Trump and Steve Bannon's one, you know, who I think does believe this. And so this kind, of, all I'm saying is this kind of fits into this general kind of worldview about making sure that America stays kind of white European essentially, which is something that it's becoming less and less of. That's all. So, uh, okay. Uh, anyway, See, I, it, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, one, I mean, I, look, I, I completely get that there can be people who oppose, uh, Israeli policy, uh, who are not anti-Semitic, uh, that they can oppose Israeli policy just on the merits. Um, by the same token, I mean, I, I think the left should acknowledge there are people who can say, we think there's a security threat oh, sure. from, from you. Uh, you know, radical, radical jihad. And that's not racist to think that. No, you're absolutely right. And and that's if I if I uh, gave you that impression, I was saying that that's no, I, not, I, not I misspoke. You. I'm just but, saying. But yeah. yeah, I see what you're saying. Absolutely. OK, um, you know, moving on, Jay, the biggest non story of the week, or at least the most overblown story, I think, of the week was the so-called scoop that uh, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow had about President Trump's tax returns. Well, while Maddow did have some Trump tax return documents, there, there wasn't much. I mean, two pages of his 2005 return that told us, you know, very little. I mean, we now know that Donald Trump made $150 million that year, paid $38 million in taxes, thanks to the alternative minimum tax, which he wants to eliminate. But we still don't know anything. Can you blame him? Well, yeah, but we still don't know anything about his investments and his financial relationships and his potential conflicts of interest. Something I talk about in the newsletter this week. Now, the president initially claimed that he would release his returns once his IRS audit was over. You remember that, Jay? Yeah. 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 But but since then, he's gone back on the promise. As his spokesperson Kellyanne Conway said, "The White House response is that he's not going to release his tax returns. We litigated this." All through the election, people didn't care. They voted for him. Now, of course, more, more people voted for Hillary Clinton than him, but that's another story. So, Jay, what did you make out of all this? Uh, I think it's sort of a, a big so what. And if anything, there was a, a a benefit to Trump in that he paid $35 million in taxes, uh, which, the you know, the, the narrative uh, during the campaign was that uh, based on losses that he had uh, claimed, you know, earlier that he, you know, he was paying no taxes. Um, 
And maybe in some years he did pay no taxes. Uh, but, but, um, and this is the problem, you know, right? Of two pages of one year of a return. Yeah. And, and I mean, there are some people who, you know, suggest that it's so favorable that maybe someone from with, you know, maybe Donald Trump himself linked this or leaked this. And he has a history of calling up reporters under assumed names and so forth right. and leaking stuff. You know, uh, it's not like he called himself Carlos Danger or anything like that, but that's uh, another story. But, uh, you know, he's done this in the past. Uh, this certainly does not make Donald Trump look bad at all. But uh, I, I, I don't really, I don't really think it tells us a whole lot. But it does, you know, if, if it's not Donald Trump, and I think there's reason to believe that it's not Donald Trump who leaked this. You know, certainly this kind of plays in this larger story about uh, there being a lot of leaks inside the Trump administration, a lot of unhappy people. There was a story this week in Politico about how the the Trump you know, White House has become this incredibly paranoid sort of like Nixonian paranoid sort of place, you know, where everyone well, is there, to blame them? yeah looking <laughs> over their shoulder and so forth. And and uh, I mean, this 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 administration is leaking like a sieve. And so it's qu- entirely possible that we'll see more uh, tax returns, though I don't know. Uh, I don't know if that will happen. I certainly think it would be, you know, useful to happen, uh, but uh, I wouldn't hold your breath. Yeah, I, I I don't even know that it's it's particularly useful, except as you say, if there's some indication that he's got uh, business and foreign business interests that that ought to be disclosed. Exactly. Uh, that that aren't. Uh, but the amount of money that that uh, Trump actually makes and the uh, amount of tax he pays, uh, provided that he's he's doing it, you know, pursuant to the the rules and regulations that we've got. I mean, that's that's kind of immaterial to me, and I think to a lot of people. Now, what uh, do you what do you think about the the idea? And some Democrats have uh, proposed this. It's gotten nowhere, of course, of legislation that would require the major party presidential candidates to release their tax returns for the last whatever decade or so. I think it's a, a bad idea um, just because I think it, it keeps good people out of the process um, at different levels. Because if once it starts at the presidential level, it's going to, to go down to every other every other potential level. And well, maybe. there are going to be people who just don't just don't want to do that, just don't want that hassle. Um, uh, Is it and, such a uh, hassle, though, Jay? I mean, to be uh, every presidential candidate except for Donald well, Trump then, for the then, last 40 know, years has done you, it. You want to. Here's here's the thing. It's it's really pretty easy to take some information from tax returns and misrepresent it. Sure, which um, is why you want to or put or just to to and and there's also look people like to keep some of their financial dealings private. I bet they do. Um and but but no, the, I, there, then there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, in fact, that used to be something that was sort of a a good thing. That was. Um, so, you know, it so was, then, it was really sort of bad, bad taste to to go around talking about your your uh, your holdings and your money and where you had it and so forth. So, so you're so, not you're not concerned that Donald Trump might have conflicts of interest he's not talking about that we would know about if we saw his tax returns, or at least certainly that uh, we could settle the issue one way or another, either he did or he didn't. Or do you think not so much? Eh, not so much, and and I'm not sure that that uh, the tax returns are, are necessarily going to tell you that. Um, you know, I, I guess, you know, to, to the, the idea that the, this whole conflicts of interest, I'm, I'm still not clear exactly where that, that comes in. There's plenty of other disclosures that the candidates make, and there's certainly political pressure uh, on a presidential candidate to release tax returns. Um, 
Clearly not which, enough in this know, case, was, right? There was a whole lot, but but again, it wasn't it wasn't a big enough issue for for the people to say, uh, look, we don't we don't think we're going to vote for him because we haven't seen his tax returns. So I, I, I hear what you're saying. I mean, I, 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 mean, I, just, I, I'm, I yeah. I, when there's when there's no need to have more more laws to sure. to uh, make the process more more difficult and to keep good people out of it. I just uh, just let the the political system play out. And if people think it's important that they see their candidates' tax returns, then the candidates will either show them or they'll lose. Okay, uh, you know, moving on to uh, I guess what I'll call regrettable presidential tweets, which is of course a, a sadly regular story these days. Uh, the White House is not backing down in the face of bipartisan rejection of the president's Twitter claim that former President Obama illegally wiretapped him, which Trump, in a series of tweets called "McCarthyism," a new low. Nixon, Watergate, and the act of a bad or sick guy, meaning President Obama. Now, Press Secretary right. Sean Spicer, whose job to me seems more and more like that poor guy who walks behind the elephant with a shovel, um, alternately claimed that he and that he and the president were simply stating what had been reported in the mainstream media, which is a lie, and then offering up the creative suggestion that as wiretapping was in quotes, it didn't mean, you know, wiretapping. And then there right. was the claim that the British intelligence service assisted in the wiretapping, or I'm sorry, wiretapping, which the British quickly and vehemently denied. Now, now to me, Jay, it's really clear what's going on here. Uh, President Trump got what's all going on? here. Here's what I think. President Trump got all worked up about something he heard on Fox News. He made a series of extremely stupid and irresponsible tweets, and then he demanded his people support those tweets with whatever. Um, evidence they could cobble together. And so now they're, they're stuck because Donald Trump is somebody who never apologizes, never walks back anything, and he's put his folks in the position of having to defend what's essentially indefensible. Well, what do you think, Jay? Well, you're you're probably right, I think, on a lot of that. Um, what, you know, and again, the, the bizarre thing to me is that, you know, these are tweets that came at like six in the morning and, you know, made me wonder perhaps it was all a dream or something like that. That You know, he, he, he could say I, I, I took his Ambien. Yeah. And it was just, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. Um, uh, I, look, I, I've, you and I talked about this. There, there have been uh, reports that uh, Trump associates have been swept up in, in wiretaps. Uh and we certainly know that Flynn was. Uh, now that was not a a FBI criminal justice wiretap. Uh, that was a sort of general foreign intelligence. Uh, hey, we're keeping an eye on the Russian ambassador kind of wiretap. Right. Um, so I, I think you know I, I now whether Trump does this intentionally or whether this is just the way his mind works. I I don't know. I think he's sort of conflated that, and he he takes it something that has a a bit of truth to it, and I think there is a bit of truth that. That look, there's, there may well be conversations that that Trump had that have been recorded. Right. Uh, we don't know that, but he conflates it to um, Obama ordered wiretapping on me at Trump Tower. Yeah. Um, which I which I don't think happened, and all the evidence that, that to you know at this point indicates that it didn't happen. Um, but but his you know it's one of these. Uh, Again, you know, don't well, take him literally, but take yeah, him seriously. Well, well, here again is a case where it seems to me that one of the one of President Trump's biggest problems is that he can't get out of his own way more so than than most people. I mean, he it's clear that he he doesn't you know he says these things and he does these things that 
maybe he thinks are going to work for him in some way. Maybe this is all some grand strategy. But honestly, I think that's overthinking it. I just think he sees these things and he reacts and he ends up causing himself a lot more problems than he needs to, especially since he can't seem to help himself and he can't seem to walk back anything. And and yeah, again, yeah, if, and if, if I were a conservative – I would be really disappointed because I would I would say you know there was an opportunity here to do there's an opportunity here to do some things with a Republican president and a Republican Congress and potentially at some point in the near future a Republican Supreme Court and it's being well it's being pissed away by this guy who can't stay off of Twitter at five something in the morning and do dumb stuff. Yeah, I agree. I mean, take you know somebody ought to take has to take the phone away from him. Yeah. <laughs> now, now as as a liberal, I'm fine with this in a way because it does distract from some of the I think really awful stuff he wants to do. Because of course, on policy grounds, I I object to a lot of the stuff he wants to do. But but it's just it's just uh, puzzling, I guess. And I think it's it's I don't really think there's a grand strategy. I just think he's a guy who has a lot of trouble controlling himself. I think that's I think that's right, and I think he is also he punches back, um, and and he, he lashes out. He does yeah. that, yeah, yeah, in, in sort of broad broad strokes, and that's something that we haven't really seen in presidents uh, ever because it's typically sort of deemed to be not presidential. Um, but uh, you know, especially attacking a former president and, and making these kinds of allegations. Uh, like I said, we're, we keep saying he's going to have some evidence this week. And my sense is there is going to be something. I, I think there's going to be some sort of uh, disclosure that, yes, uh, someone, you know, either related to Trump or Trump himself was somehow caught up in, in wiretaps, uh, perhaps right. involving Trump Tower, perhaps not. But it's not going to be a President Obama ordered wiretrapping of Trump Tower. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's not going to be. And, and, you know, to to his, I don't want to say his credit, I mean his defense, the left does the same sort of thing of conflating um, stories sometimes. For sure. example, you know, how, how long did we talk about Russians hacking the sure. election? No, I think, I think well, that's, they didn't really, yeah. They didn't really hack the election. Yeah. Um, that That's a great point, Jay, and I totally agree, but I also would point out that it's one thing when BuzzFeed News is irresponsible, as certainly they have been, I would say, yeah. but and it's another, another thing. The president of the exactly, States, yes. exactly, yes. you know, so. Uh, no, I, I agree. If you, but if I, again, I think that goes back to Trump doesn't see the difference. No, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. Okay, finally, let's close on some economic news, some non-Trump news, Jay. It does happen occasionally. Good, yeah. Good. This week, the Federal Reserve voted to raise its benchmark interest rate a quarter point from 05 to 0.75% range to a 075 to 1% range, still awfully low historically. Now, the increase was clearly telegraphed by the Fed well ahead of time, and it's expected to be the first in a series of rate hikes over the next few years. Now, while economic growth has been nothing to write home about, unemployment has fallen, the labor market is showing clear signs of tightening, and so the Fed felt it should act in order to stave off inflation in excess of that 2% target rate it always looks at. And markets reacted well to the announcement. Uh, what about you, Jay? How did you react to the announcement? I reacted well, too. Yeah, so did I. Um, okay. Yeah, I think this is, I think this is a, a good sign, and I think it's – uh, Yellen's doing the right thing of, of a gradualism sort of approach. Um, you know, the markets aren't getting spooked by there's going to be sudden increases. Uh, but, but we're recognizing that, that we're going to move out of that, that historic 
you know, lower, you know, ultra low uh, interest rates. And, and it seems to be sort of uh, responsible management. And uh, the fact that the markets responded as they did, uh, I think, is even even a better sign. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you know. I mean, typ- typically the the you know the the idea is even a, a hint or a whisper of um, of an increase in rates you know sends uh, is indicate you know results in a, a market decline right. at least in the near term. Um, so I, I think this is this is something that had been long anticipated, and it looks like it's being done gradually. Uh, so I I think it's it's a, a it's a good thing. It's terrific. Uh, yeah, absolutely. In, in presidential terms, so so yeah, I, I agree with you, Jay, entirely. I think it was handled very well. I, I still have a an awful lot of faith in the Federal Reserve, and it seems like they're they're doing uh, they're doing the right thing at the right time. All right. Well, on that positive note, uh, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, or questions for Ask the Politics Guys, we would love to hear from you. Our email is mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where we post throughout the week, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we're also on Twitter at politicsguys. Now, we'd really appreciate if you could subscribe to the show and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service you use. And sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also helps out a lot. If you'd like to support the show financially, you can do that through the Patreon or PayPal links on our website. And if you enjoy the show, you should definitely check out the Politics Guys weekly newsletter. You can take a look at previous newsletters and sign up to have it delivered to your email inbox on our website, politicsguys.com. The Politics Guys will be back next Sunday. We hope you'll join us.